Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest from the great north, Chris Hawley. Chris founded Craftwell Architecture Plus Construction on the belief that great process has the potential to result in quality, timeless design that positively shapes communities and neighborhoods. As a 2004 graduate of North Dakota State University's architecture program with an emphasis in art, Chris has refined his skills over the years, emerging as a successful architect with a discerning eye for quality, creativity, and design. Craftwell's residential roots began when Chris designed and built his family's cabin near his hometown of Minot, North Dakota. Prior to his graduation from North Dakota State University, the cabin's design is characterized by architectural details that reference the prairie, his family's agricultural roots, and his strong Scandinavian heritage. The four core beliefs that guided the design were a passion for residential design, architecture as storytelling, the beauty in the details, and North Dakota design excellence. These four beliefs served as the foundation when Craftwell was founded in 2011 with Chris as a solo practitioner of architecture. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So before we get into everything you do over at Craftwell, tell us how you got here. You know, that's one of the questions. This is a an architecture slash business podcast. And I'm always interested to know what is driving other entrepreneurs. You know, were you were you did you come from a family that was not entrepreneurs and that's what kind of drove you because a lot of folks do the opposite or was it sort of instilled in you, you know, from the beginning? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it was instilled in me since the beginning. Um, I didn't realize this probably up until a couple of years ago, but nobody in my family has ever worked for anybody or had a boss. You know, we, uh, North Dakota, you know, there's like a lot of stubborn people here, which is kind of fun, but uh, you know, I have a grandpa who was a farmer. I have another grandpa who was an entrepreneur and a business owner. Uh, both of my parents were small business owners. And it was kind of, um, it's kind of like what we do. We always, you know, we latch onto a thing and, you know, make a career out of that. And I don't know that I knew anything any differently. And uh, it just felt fairly natural that this, I would end up doing this. Um, you know, I've got unique parents too. My dad was, you know, went to school to be a draftsman, didn't end up doing that, but loved to draw. So I kind of had a little bit of that in me. Uh, my mom is a furniture maker and so uh, has done upholstery and furniture building for, oh, I don't know, 45 years. And, uh, you know, does a lot of bespoke things and like custom made things and, you know, does interiors of airplanes and exotic projects and so it's interesting like my mom always says she's not very creative but the reality is that her work is uh and uh you know and it's everything was handmade as a kid you know my uh you know whether my mom was doing something that was handmade or you know I was telling Mike Dawson uh my partner here at Craftwell about uh you know kind of childhood I didn't realize that you could go buy clothes until I was in junior high because my grandma and my mom made all of our clothes which mm. to me was is kind of a weird thing when I think about it. Like, you know, we were uh, sort of old souls, I think, relative to like how they uh, raised a family and, and thought about making things. And so uh, I, I think our firm is a little bit like that too. So, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I love that. Uh, when you started your firm, 
you left a formerly prominent boutique firm in Fargo. What kind of lessons did you take from that former firm when you started yours? So, so you didn't repeat their mistakes or, or maybe there was even good lessons. You know, I'm always curious when people break off and architects do this all the time, go out on their own and they spearhead their own, their own practice. And a lot of times they are taking those bad mistakes and trying to not repeat them. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, my former firm was a very successful firm and we, and we did a lot of really great things and nice things and projects. Um, you know, I think my lessons there were, I learned a ton in terms of how to be an architect and how to practice. And we certainly had a formula for like how to deliver projects and, you know, how to be efficient with our time and provide value for clients and all of that. Like, I, I don't know that I would have, um, I, I can't think of a better place to have learned that. And then, you know, just kind of learning the ins and outs of like what it means to put together a nice drawing set and things like that. Um, ultimately for me, you know, given the fact that I was shaped by business owners, I, um, I certainly felt like there was a better way to do business in terms of like, you know, financially and, you know, how do you manage cash flow? How do you manage, you know, uh, how do you manage your month? How do you manage your billing? How do you manage your time? You know, you know, not having too much overhead, um, making sure that the principles are, making money, not just spending money. Uh, those are all things that I kind of um, felt like I could do uh, maybe a better job with. I've always seen, my, I always wanted to be the number two guy and kind of be a, like a true practitioner. I don't know that I, to be honest, I never intended to leave my former firm. I kind of liked the idea of being a number two guy uh, and just cranking on projects. The reality is, is it became necessitated just by nature of you know, uh, financials and how to run a business and cash flow. I just felt like there were, uh, I could do that better. And it wasn't because I wanted to, it's, I felt like I almost had to in order to, you know, be successful. I also had, uh, I had a ton of work that was, you know, kind of sitting on my shoulders often. And I had a lot of clientele that were, you know, kind of leaning heavily on me and it just, it, you know, the timing of that made sense. Uh, and so, I mean, it wasn't because I set out to do it. It was because it was necessitated ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like there's a bit of providence there. Uh, tell me about your business partner. You know, did you, when you first started, it was just you, right? And you, did you, did you find a business partner? Like how did that all come together? I'm always curious, like Alex and I, we were just best friends in college. Right. It just made, it just made sense. And it's, we've continued to be friends somehow. Uh, but I'm always curious about other folks. And like, I think when you have a business partner like you do, and and I do, you're a two-headed dragon. You're much more powerful in the sense of decision-making and be able to bounce ideas off each other than a sole practitioner. Yeah. I, so Mike Dawson, uh, so I started out on my own. I quickly hired, like I, three months into starting the firm, I quickly hired Mike. He was in his last you know, I had some things that needed to be done, you know, build a model, get ready for the home show, a lot of odds and ends, you know, all the classic sort of intern things that kind of come with starting. Um, he's my first hire, uh, you know, he graduated, I hired him, uh, at, you know, probably nine months after, you know, uh, Crapwell started. Uh, and he's been with me for all 11 years. He has been kind of my right hand, you know, I would say that, you know, he and I can probably finish each other's sentences because we've kind of walked the walk together for this long. Um, you know, ultimately he, he is, 
you know, he, he has built this business just as much as I have, uh, you know, and so, you know, this last, let's see, it's been the last year and a half or two years. Now Mike is, uh, you know, a fully vested owner and partner and, you know, we're kind of off and running. We're also finding out that, you know, now that you have two people kind of spearheading the rainmaking, uh, you know, we, we probably need more staff because, you know, there are, now there are two driving work and that's been a, you know, it's interesting to have the, the learning curve of, you know, you know, for 10 years or nine years, it was probably majority of that burden probably landed on my shoulders to generate work. And now it's, now it's a, now it's a two person thing. And so like quantity now is, uh, you know, is starting to double, if not triple. And, uh, we're, we're, we're tasting what that, you know, the complexity of that right now. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the interesting thing is like, you know, there are, and we bring in a lot of people too. Like, you know, we have like close to 20 staff now. Um, the interesting thing about Mike and I is that we've grown together. And so there's not, not this like, um, there's no shedding of bad habits. There's no relearning. There's no retraining. We are really integrated in terms of like our approach and our kind of how, what we believe in, in terms of how to approach a project and how to deal with a client. Um, and so like that is sort of a really cool and, and beautiful thing because I, he doesn't worry about me and I don't worry about him. And like, there's just like full trust. Uh, it's definitely a marriage, uh, business marriage for sure. And, uh, you know, now our wives are involved too. You know, my wife runs the office. Uh, Mike's wife is a amazing project architect who is kind of headed up our commercial larger projects. And so like, we better get along because there's, you know, there are a lot of lives and families sort of, uh, who depend on this thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting thing. You know, I, Mike and I always talk about it being a family and, and I approach the firm that way. I really don't want to get away from that because I just, I, I really don't enjoy, uh, other versions of a firm that maybe aren't like that. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been great. And I, you know, I, we have a lot of blue sky, I think here in the next uh, five to 10 years. So. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. Uh, when you originally started the architecture firm, it wasn't uh, also a construction firm, correct? So what prompted the design? And if, if that's incorrect, correct me, but like what prompted the design to move to full design build? Yeah. So um, previous firm, we had integrated some of the design build pieces uh, you know, you kind of have to have a critical mass in order to be able to do that. I had, um, I had probably two to three projects when I left that were, it would sustain me for, two, up for the, for two years when I started Craftwell. Um, I quickly, what happened though, is after I got started, the phone just kind of started to, you know, uh, it started to snowball fairly quickly. And so we ended up getting a lot of inquiries had a lot of opportunity, a lot of big projects kind of landing on my lap. Um, I actually started a company called Radiant Homes uh, quickly after founding Craftwell, brought in some partners, they ran the construction piece, I did the design stuff, I kind of fed the, the construction arm. Um, and so I did that, we did that for probably, um, that was probably about four years. Uh, I ultimately sold that company to the partners that I had brought in because they were, you know, it, uh, they were kind of off and running and wanting to do their own things. And I was wanting to do my own things. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of shifted 
uh, and you know went out and you know Craftful kind of was a standalone entity for a very brief period of time, and probably a year into that, we uh, kind of integrated the started hiring construction staff to to accommodate that work again. You know, I've always uh, you know I put myself through college, uh, you know, working construction as a carpenter and doing a lot of things that uh, you know a lot of blue collar work. And uh, I've always, that's definitely a part of kind of our DNA. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have a hard time um, not thinking about us doing that. Uh, you know, it has certainly grown into a very large piece of our business. Um, I would say the architecture thing is, um, it's super important and it's amazing. And it's a feeder for the construction piece, but the construction piece is, has arguably is, is a bigger business. Um, it's also a, a more chaotic business to manage and, and a harder business to manage. Um, definitely more blue sky than the architecture thing. I would say the architecture thing is a very, for us anyway, uh, is a very manageable, very sustainable, very level uh, kind of income stream in terms of, and then, you know, in terms of workload, I, I would say it's very, it's a lot easier to manage because we get to kind of be in charge of our own schedule. Uh, the construction one is a little harder. That, that there's just so many variables there that are outside of your control. Um, but yeah, I mean, we love it. It's, it's, there's a lot of creative control. Um, I mean, I, the reason I do it is because there's so many people that are so bad at it that we wanted to be in control of it. So that's, that's ultimately why we do it is because oftentimes we find out that people, um, don't, aren't very good at it. And then they, you know, in those projects don't, aren't always all that successful. So what are some specifics that you found that they're bad at? Uh, the, the other folks that you essentially you were, were competing with, but now you're doing the work. Yeah, I mean, I think the design intent often gets lost sometimes. And when we're doing really custom high-end stuff, I, we, we found that um, there's just so many, uh, you know, there, there can be a lot of misses, like, you know, in terms of, and, you know, sure, you can have amazing drawings, um, but at the end of the day, sometimes this comes down to sort of the, the craft or having people that have that extra level of detail. And with, with the available labor in the world right now, a lot of it is, is so much geared towards just getting the job done. And it's not really about craftsmanship anymore. And so one of the things that is difficult when you get to a client who has high expectations, like a high end, you know, whether it's a boutique commercial project or it's a really beautiful high-end custom residential, the expectations are a lot higher. And that level of craft and detail is an expectation if you don't hit it. And so that's ultimately why we do it. And, you know, I mean, there, and we make shifts, like we make a lot of little decisions along the way that ultimately change the trajectory of the final product. Uh, and, you know, I mean, ultimately dictate the success of that project too. And if it's not successful, uh, you know, that can be expensive and not fun. And um, so uh, it's just making sure that we're, you know, we're, we're setting clients up for success. Yeah. How, how does that, how does that, how does the pipeline work when you do design build? Is it, is it design first, then you entertain the idea of building if you like the client or is it people come to you and they say, Hey, I want to build this. Okay. First we got to design it, you know, cause a lot of this is client education always. Yeah. Um, you know, or is it everything all under the sun? I think it's everything under the sun. Um, I've always uh, 
approached it as like, hey, you know, you, we'll start with the design piece and you, you know, you can hire us and they're two separate contracts. They're almost two separate businesses, but it's all under one roof. We're all one team. Um, but you know, anybody, we, we kind of approach like, hey, anybody can build it. You know, we're going to design it. We may be a good fit to build it too. You know, we probably start a hundred projects a year in this office or project folders. You know, and some of those, you know, like die on the table. Some of them, that's all the truth to go. Some of them are so small that it, they're, they're like inconsequential. Um, out of that hundred, we probably build 10. And that's us cherry picking a little bit what those projects are and which ones we feel are like the perfect fit for us. Sometimes that's perfect fit because it's a certain kind of client that's just a, you know, a delight to work for. Sometimes it's like, wow, this is the coolest opportunity and like how would we let anybody put this together besides us um sometimes it's you know financial for sure sometimes we put but you know ultimately we're not going to do it unless we're proud of it and so like you know i mean the stuff we do build is usually higher in terms of uh design like they're to me they're the really nice projects or they're the pretty dialed in thing you know we don't do a lot of uh stuff that we're not proud of so that's you know ultimately that's kind of what it, how it shakes out yeah how has the since you guys have done construction and do construction how has that influenced the way you draw and design has there been a cross-pollination happening between people out in the field coming back and saying look if we had the drawings a certain different way just if you could tweak them in these certain manners it would help us out much more in in the field have you have you experienced any of that oh my goodness that's every day yeah that's i mean and i think it's it's a two-way street uh you know i would say uh construction folks are understanding what things are flexible what things are malleable what things you know are, are going to probably change a little bit because of the client or the type of project we're working on and i think the the you know on the design side I think the design team starts to think like a builder. Hmm. And, 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 and when I say that, like to me, the most successful people in our office are the ones who understand the critical path, sequential nature of construction. And they can see like this before that. And this decision is the most important one we make. And then all of the other ones fall in line after this one. And it's the prioritization of like decision-making on the design side that makes for a smoother, better, you know, product when it comes to the time of like, okay, now let's go get it done. And that back and forth is amazing. You know, we're, so we're working right now on a new office for ourselves and it's the quirkiest project ever. It's in a parking garage, lower level, super weird project, but you know, like on the, on the street, there's lots of, uh, you know, there's, there's a huge homeless population in this area. And one of the biggest decisions we're ever going to make on the whole project is picking the right garage door to create security, privacy, and long-term durability for this little corner. And it sounds so silly, but I'm like, wow, that's the most important decision in the project. And, and partly because of what it does to, you know, for other decisions down the, down the line. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. Uh, and I hope every architect that's listening who is considering design build, just it's reemphasized. Not Alex and I talk about this all the time, but that cross-pollination is so important. I just think it makes you such a better architect um, that you're able to, everybody's able to speak to each other and to your staff too. I mean, 
they sure. will yeah um and the, builder, and the building side too starts to think about the details and the importance of design and like they start to get really critical of all of the little things that, that become high expectations for the the design team like fascia size and, you know you know little detail like okay how does this material meet this material like it's like wow that's that takes a long time to train uh, but once they get there, you're like, oh, that's, it's refreshing. So it's magic, 100% yeah. magic. Uh, how are your companies structured then? Because I know you're presenting as Craftswell yeah. Plus, but like, are they actually two different? You know, so that one domino falls, the other one it doesn't, you know, fall. The the whole thing doesn't fall apart, or how does that work? Oh, it's all one thing, um, and it's all under one umbrella. You know, contractually, we have different contracts for different things. And depending on our, our scope of work or what we're being asked to do, we certainly tailor uh, contracts to reflect our, our work. Uh, but, you know, it is, it's all, it's all one bucket. I mean, the one thing that's really interesting, though, is, um, you know, architecture in general is super consistent and flatline and probably grows a little bit as we add staff and get bigger projects. Um, but there's, you know, if architecture, if we have a month that's maybe a little bit more down and, uh, you know, oftentimes construction is way up and vice versa. Like we, it's amazing as a whole, as a business, like they, they certainly offset each other. Like, you know, there are months where it's like, wow, we should just be a construction company because, you know, we've had a really successful month. But then there are months where it's the opposite is true, where we're like, we are, you know, winter months for us are, very heavy handed in terms of design time and uh, our billable, our billings are really high in the winter time and they're lower in the summer. And, you know, and then, but it's opposite when it comes to construction. So like we, if you look at the trajectory of a year, it's amazing how the two halves balance each other out. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, tell us, let's switch topics just a little bit and tell us about winning the commission for the governor's mansion in North Dakota. You know, how, how did that, how did that happen? And what was that experience like? Um, yeah. So how did that happen? That was, uh, I think we had a lot of cheerleaders for us, you know, at the state level. Uh, I think they really wanted to see a local firm, um, you know, sort of, uh, have the opportunity to do that project. So that was a big piece of that. We did compete, uh, against quite a few outside people, a lot of Minneapolis firms, a lot of kind of uh, some pretty big hitters, actually, some very large national level residential groups. Um, ultimately, I think, uh, you know, I, I had, there's a few people on the, a few decision makers that were certainly pushing to have us do it just because of our, um, oh, our, our history with some of those clients. Um, you know, competed, I would say there was probably 20 or so people that were very viable candidates that went after that. Uh, there was a short list of three, uh, and then we interviewed and ended up getting it. Um, you know, tricky project, kind of the opposite from a process perspective than anything I've ever done. You know, I'm um, so used to working with, you know, kind of a typically, you know, the classic husband and wife team that you know, and we, and all we're really doing is managing the couple, uh, and, you know, making sure that they both get what they want and find a, kind of a, a really happy middle ground for both parties. This is harder, uh, way harder. This was two committees, 
Uh, one was a design committee with no designers on it, mm. uh, which was really difficult. A lot of, uh, a lot of legislators, a lot of politicians. Uh, and then there was a uh, capital grounds planning commission, which is oversees all anything that happens on the North Dakota state capital grounds. And they're, I would say like the judge and jury of anything that happens there and like really great group. Um, interestingly enough, these guys make a recommendation to this group and they get to approve or not approve. They did not see eye to eye. And so we were the middle man on that. And so that was really difficult. Like, you know, we're making recommendations here. I would say my vision probably aligned more with the Capital Grounds Planning Commission in terms of what that project should, should be. Um, I would say the design committee probably was a little uh, not super in tune with what the overall objective of the Capital Grounds was. Um, so that was difficult. Ultimately, we made it through that. The, the second tier of that, or the, you know, was, was managing a budget that was extremely rigid. I mean, I don't, I mean, we used to turn up, you know, on that one, like it was so, so tight, like couldn't go a dollar over, you know, and that's a little different, right? Like you do a high-end custom project for a client, uh, they often have room to wiggle, to accommodate mm -hmm. their wishes, to, you know, to, to, to get it, to, to elevate a project, they'll often step up to accommodate that, that, uh, that design request or that design thinking, um, no room for that whatsoever. When you do a state project, it, it is 100% black and white. And if you don't fit within one camp or the other, um, they die. That project almost died on the table multiple times. Um, you know, in the final hour, we had a Bismarck firm, uh, construction firm who came through and ultimately bid it and uh, made it a reality. And so like, you know, kind of saved the project. Um, you know, after it finally got kind of uh, the green light, uh, you know, it was, it was complicated. It was very political. Um, and there was a lot of people that were, you know, had opinions about what that project should be. And so, uh, so that was a whole nother level. I've never been entrenched in a political thing before. Uh, I don't think I want to do it again. If somebody asked me to do it again, I probably would do it. But you know, uh, it was it was tricky. I mean, it was it was it was super super tricky. But you know, all in all, it's a nice project. Probably could have used a couple extra million bucks to to make it really nice. But um, I am proud of it because I think it does. It did check the boxes of what the intent of the project was. I would say it's not one of our like heavily elevated projects where you walk into it and go, oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing ever. It is not that. Um, it is, uh, I think, timeless in its ability to sort of transition over multiple administrations, different kinds of families. You know, like if you were to do like a, a matrix of like all of the types of families that could ever live in that house, which we did, we did a matrix like this, it, it, it can accommodate all of that. I would say it is not perfect for anyone individually, but it's great as a, as a multi-generational thing that gets passed on from administration to administration. Yeah. What do you, I counted uh, before the interview, I counted there was 18 folks, it looks like on your website uh, staff, and I, you mentioned you're up, up somewhere upward 20. So what do you think the success has been in growing from one to 18 over the past 11 years? 
Um, you know, I'm, uh, I think it's a customer service thing. I, you know, like we are uh, very flexible, very malleable, very accommodating. Um, and I think ultimately like, you know, so I've, I've learned that. I think, you know, Mike Dawson, you know, his family comes from an insurance, very heavy insurance business that's heavily customer service. I come from a customer service world. And honestly, like without that perspective, I think, you know, or, or, or the patience, uh, you know, I, I don't know that we would be as successful as we are. You know, I think we have some really talented people uh, that certainly doesn't hurt, um, but ultimately we sort of approach projects like um, as if they're not ours. We, you know, we know that they're somebody else's project and we are there to uh, help them with the thing that they know that they can't do. And, and, and so, but ultimately, you know, sure. Like if you're really good at this, you're pretty good at sales too. And, and uh, you can almost figure out a way to, you know, get, get what you want while giving them what they want. And there's a trick to that. There's kind of a magic to that. And I think designers who think it's about them are kind of in for a rude awakening often. And, 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 you know, we kind of approach it a little bit differently where it's like, you know, we are, um, we're a guide for them. We're not necessarily the one uh, telling them what to do all the time. Yeah, I think they're in the. I think they're in the. They're setting themselves up for heartbreak. I think that's one of the first thing young designers figure out is like you're going to break your own heart if you yes. think it's going to go your way the whole way. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not um, about you. That's what I always tell anybody, any new hire. You know, rude awakening. This is not about you. Hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, sort of a tangential question. I know you met Bill Gates. What was it like to meet Bill Gates? And then what is it like to now be in the Illuminati? Uh, <laughs> he's not an Illuminati. It's a joke. But what was it like? What was that? Uh, I heard through the grapevine that you had this conversation with Bill. Yeah. So we did a really amazing house for a very, one of our favorite clients and really smart guy. And so you, there's this inner circle of, of uh, software architects in Microsoft. And this is like arguably like the best and the brightest in the world in terms of computer engineering, uh, software and hardware. Uh, and uh, every year, this inner circle of distinguished engineers gets to go to Bill Gates's house. Well, it just so happens we did one of those engineers' houses his, and his wife did not want to go. Mm. Uh, and so uh, he's like, hey, by the way, you know, do you want to go? And you know, I also planted the seed way ahead of time that, hey, you know, Jim Cutler is one of my favorite architects, had done Bill Gates' house, um, would, you know, would love to see that. Uh, so I got invited. Um, and, you know, one of the most amazing experiences of my life, I always, I almost forget that it happened, or like, I kind of think maybe that was a dream, and like, you know, pinch me sort of thing. Um, pretty wild, you know, um, um, you know, some of the most amazing art you've ever seen in your life. Uh, some of the most amazing architecture and detailing you've ever seen in your life. Uh, you know, and at the end of the day, this, this, my client, uh, had been there multiple times and kind of knew the, knew the format. And the irony is like, everybody's hanging out in, in this upper level thing. And Bill Gates is waiting at the bottom of the stairs and nobody's like going downstairs. And so we go down and there's this awkward pause between 
Bill and my client, and I took the opportunity to ask him as many questions as I could. And so, you know, uh, had 15 minutes with Bill Gates talking about, and so here I am talking at the time, the richest man in the world about his house project. And so, you know, in my mind, like the, you know, the upper tier of high end residential stuff uh, or construction, that was, you know, I, I got a, kind of an inside peek at what that was all about. And so the irony is like, you know, he's like, you know, I, he's telling me all about the process and, and the, 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 the document he issued to prospective architects. And he talked about this Japanese architect who did a bunch of concrete. He knew none of their names, you know, but they're all like, I'm kind of piecing it together. Like the most famous architects in the world all had a chance to do this house. Ultimately he wanted a local uh, and James Cutler was selected to do the house. You know, he talks about, you know, I, one of the, my, the funniest part about the whole thing, though, is like this is the richest guy in the world complaining about him setting a budget of $25 million and the project getting to $100 million. And he was complaining about the cost and the overruns and the architect and, you know, you know how the architect needed to do, because, you know, you come into this house and it's amazing. It's a, it's, there's a glass elevator and it feels like you're entering into the Pembiner River Gorge and like, you know, they insisted on having two foot thick stones stacked inside of this elevator shaft, uh, even though you really could, and, and, and it was a $25 million decision to do two foot thick stone versus six inch veneer. And, you know, the architect said, you know, Jim, Jim Cutler said, well, you know, if another architect ever comes here, they'll know that it's a veneer and not two feet thick. And so, you know, it was a $25 million decision and, you know, I got a chance to experience it and I got a chance to listen to Bill complain about how expensive it was. And um, it was amazing. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. Very interesting. Uh, we're, we're just past the half hour here, Chris. I have two last questions for you. I ask every guest this question, knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time to when you first started your business, what is one piece of advice you'd give your former self? Oh boy, that's, um, yeah, I think the one thing, and I think uh, is understanding the pace, understanding the, the importance of uh, carving out time for yourself about uh, you being super, super careful of burnout, uh, whether it's you personally, whether it's your staff, whether it's all that, and that's me being super reflective now. At you know, eleven years into my own firm, but you know, twenty years into practice, um, you know, the and not feeling um, bad about uh, stealing your own time and stealing your time back, and you know, and saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, I always I've got a lot of dentist friends who never work on Fridays, and I'm like always super jealous and. Um, I've kind of adopted some of those practices where you say, you know what, you know, when I was in architecture school and I know I'm sure Lance the same for you, like it was always like, oh, we work all day, every day. And there's, you know, there's no room for anything but work. I don't believe that. I never want to be in a firm like that. Um, I leave often on a Thursday afternoon and I'm not in the office on Friday. Sometimes I come back to the work on Monday afternoon or late Monday morning and I take really long weekends to manage my life and, and have some sort of peace uh, 
personally, because if you don't have that, running a firm is not a is not a sustainable long term thing. One hundred percent. Yeah, and, uh, and I mean, I've I've seen it, I've tasted it, I've almost, you know, burned out. And uh, you know, now that Mike is an owner, I, I think those are the things that we talk about often. Like, hey, I'm never going to feel bad if Mike is gone, and he should never feel bad if I'm gone because I know that it's important for the health of the firm long term. So, one hundred percent. Yeah. Last question: Where can people find and follow you and your firm's work? Uh, you know, we, we like to stay under the radar <laughs> and try not to be found too much, but you know, I mean, we have our website, we've got a social media presence, um, you know, I mean, Instagram, Facebook website, you know, I, I'm, I'm not very good at that. Uh, and I, you know, and I'm okay with that. Uh, we have, we have a lot of work to do just by nature of word of mouth, but, uh, if you want to keep track of us. You know, I would say the next five years is going to be a little bit different. As we've grown, we've become better and more conscious of, uh, you know, like uh, being visible. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, some of the some of the new videography stuff that we're doing uh, on our website is super cool, and I, I see us doing more and more of that. Uh, our new office, to me, is going to be a really amazing project and kind of transformative in terms of you know, taking a really weird space and making it a, a usable, functional, valuable thing. Um, so, you know, I, I would say website and uh, Instagram probably is your best bet. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Lance. Good to see you. Good to see you too, bud.